This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Hey, everybody. This is American Enough, and I'm your host, Vikram Iyer. Uh, today, we have a very special guest who has navigated healthcare policy and telecommunications policy for more than one administration. And we're going to get her thoughts um, on some of the state of play across issue areas. Um, that honored guest, Maya Ukuluru, will join us in a moment. But on a day in which much of the country is overwhelmed with conversation, again, in part because of the president's valiant Twitter stream, um, that conversation being focused on um, whether the civic disobedience or protest being shown on, on the sports field, in this case, the, the NFL, um, or even off the sports field when um, athletes are making particular commentaries on going to or not going to the White House. Um, it's really easy for all of us to get caught up by this notion of culture wars that um, this administration, and, and frankly, uh, our, the racial tension in our country's history continue to stoke over time. Um, it is very telling that uh, when you do have individuals in power um, who have a sense of moral authority in the institutions that they inhabit um, are poo-pooing or uh, diminishing the worth of individual athletes that are speaking out um, with their First Amendment right, that you definitely have a questioning of what that very institution of the Oval Office or the White House might mean. And while American identity continues to be reshaped and is particularly being begged in question day in and day out by the racial overtones of the past several months and even the racial overtones of this current administration, there is no doubt that that American institution of the White House still does and will always remain the people's house. And no matter what your politics are and whatever your views of American identity may be, particularly how those views are being shaped under modern times, there's no doubt that each day thousands of hardworking Americans show up in branches of the uh, executive branch under that White House's authority to make sure that they can continue to look to improve healthcare outcomes or simplify a tax code that works for the middle class or guide investments in new manufacturing R&D so that way new innovations take root right here at home in America or even hardworking Americans that show up to work to make sure that there are enough resources in our classroom. You can call them bureaucrats, you can call them the swamp of Washington, D.C., but there is no doubt that my former colleagues and your hardworking public servants make sure that they're doing their level best to ensure that things get a little better for our generation and our children's generation. And that's why we're lucky to have Maya Upaluru, who not only had the opportunity to work under the previous administration um, in the White House, but also had an opportunity to extend that public service, um, agnostic of who the president is, but mindful of who uh, is deserving of appropriate outcomes, um, even in this administration. Maya actually had the opportunity to work in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, launching the president's uh, President Obama's Precision Med Medicine Initiative. Uh, it's not official in Washington until there's an acronym, so we'll playfully call it PMI on this pod. And she also served as a policy advisor to the U.S. Chief Technology Officer. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vikram. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Um, so, Maya, I wanted to start with 
a, a you know I want to dig into some of the work that you've been able to contribute to, but specifically for many listeners, um, I, I kind of want to start with what happens to the staff of an administration. Uh, that turns over. You know, on January 20th, for example, we knew that the next president, the 45th president, was sworn in, and the 44th president departs and, you know, hops on a plane and says sayonara. Um, but also, a lot of the staff gets shaken up over time. On January 20th was a Friday, I believe. So that Monday, January 23rd, what really happens? Can you just paint us a picture as to why some individuals stay in the administration um, and serve the next president, whereas others may leave? Sure. Um, What a lot of people don't realize is that there's actually thousands of career staff um, at various federal agencies and also within the White House um, who joined, uh, you know, their agency, their job, because they believe in public service and because they probably have really deep uh, years of expertise in their subject matter that they um, kind of come to work every day energized about a particular topic, whether it's the environment, whether it's healthcare whether it's telecom. And um, a lot of these people have seen different presidents come and go, and um, they have a wealth of experience based on uh, just what they've seen over time. And so to answer your question on Monday, I think that, um, well, I'll talk about what happens maybe more typically. And then, of course, um, as I think all of your listeners know, this was a, a unique situation, a unique election, and a unique transition between administrations. But um Typically, what happens, and towards the end of the last administration, we would start to kind of compile memos, compile documents and presentations for both transition teams from either whether it was going to be Secretary Clinton or whether it was going to be Donald Trump, um, making sure that we kind of had all our ducks in a row. So, for example, I worked on the Precision Medicine Initiative, as you mentioned, you know, making sure that we had materials and we're in a position to brief uh, whoever this new president was going to be. Um, and and by, then, of course, by the trans- election happened. By transition teams, you mean oh, make, making sure that you are handing off the baton in some respects to the new team and making sure that they're That's all right. up to speed. Right. The big goal there is ensuring continuity and ensuring that the programs that um, were invested in and that were launched in the previous administration um, to serve, you know, whatever aspect of um, support or um you know, research for, in my example, for the American people would continue um, in the pre, in the next administration. And, and also, you know, there's kind of a desire to make sure that the, the new administration remains interested and remains equally invested in the work that you started before. So um, we would kind of put all that together and, you know, we were prepared to welcome and, and help with the transition with either um, with either campaign. So um, then, of course, the election happened. And I think we're typically you would have uh, kind of a descent of people coming in from the new administration's team. Um, we were in more of a holding pattern for uh, a couple months. And I think that different different parts of um, the Trump at transition team came in at different times. Um, but on Monday, the Monday that you're talking about, I think we still didn't really know what direction we were going to be going in. And so that's an interesting experience as a career staff to not quite know who the new leadership is going to be yet, maybe, um, or what their attitude is going to be towards um, either. So I worked on medical research, but then I also worked on um, the transition uh, of Medicaid for from fee-for-service towards value-based care. Um, so, so that's kind of a really important thing to understand whether a new administration was going to come in and want to continue that trajectory, which we had kind of started under 
um, Sebelius and Burwell, and, and we're hoping to continue because it's the kind of transition, um, and I'll explain what I mean by fee-for-service and value-based care in a second, but it's the kind of transition like anything in healthcare, which is super complex, um, is going to take years, right? It's not the sort of thing that just one administration could completely take care of and say, okay, we accomplished this, you know, success. So um, when I say fee-for-service, and so Medicare, to back up a second, Medicare is the largest payer, the largest insurance plan in the country. Um, so the federal government has a ton of power to say, uh, to kind of help to uh, direct where the rest of the market is going to go in terms of what we pay for in healthcare. Um, traditionally, and, and more historically, we've kind of had a fee-for-service system in which you or I would go to the doctor, we would get a checkup, we would get an x-ray maybe, we get a mammogram, we get you know, whatever service, and we pay for that service, and um, the physician seeks reimbursement from a health plan or from Medicare or Medicaid or whatever the payer is for that particular service. And I think there's been a, a big nationwide uh, transition and a kind of a goal for the country to kind of, to say, well, first of all, you know, as we all know, America pays the most for our health care, and we get some of the worst outcomes a lot of the time. So how can we improve this? And can we stop paying for unique services and discrete services, but instead pay for value and quality. And of course, we have to define those terms. We have to figure out what value means, and we have to figure out what quality means, and those are not easy things to define properly, but there's a ton of really smart people working on that in the federal government all the time. Um, and so, and, and as you can imagine, that transition is going to take a long time for us to get right and for us to figure out. Um, so so under even, the even, even the big the big picture point, and sorry to interrupt here, is that um, given that a lot of what you had the opportunity to work on was quite multifaceted and takes a lot of people, time, and investment to sort of guide appropriate outcomes from the policy side, even before they sort of hit the everyday customer or patient side in the real world. Um, you're saying that part of the transition and managing the transition is making sure that the teams are sufficiently aware of how to continue forward on one trajectory, but even whether or not they would continue on that trajectory, right? So everyday career Correct, employees yeah. that show up to work like you or other of your former colleagues, um, they are continuing to do that work, um, but they need to know whether or not the new leadership wants them to continue to do that work. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And I think for something like value-based care, it's actually an interesting example because there's not a lot of people, um, either conservative or liberal or whatever, um, who would say that we're against paying more for value, right? So it, it becomes more a question of, how are we going to implement this and what is the nitty gritty of, um, you know, are we going to, for, so for example, a great, you know, thing is, are we going to make things voluntary or are we going to make things mandatory? And as you can um, guess, we are seeing now a transition to making more things, more government, either regulations or participation in certain payment programs. Uh, we're seeing a, a hint or suggestion from this administration that they're going to move towards voluntary participation as opposed to making things requirements um, because there is an administration-wide focus on reducing regulatory burden, which I think is pretty typical for public administrations. Um, so while I don't think that anyone um, in the new administration would say they're against paying for value, for example, like nobody's going to say that, I think you know, overall, everybody who is well-versed in this industry knows that we have to change how we pay for um, healthcare services and, and make the system more efficient. There's just 
And there's legitimate differences here between um, how you do this most efficiently. One of the interesting things, too, that we did under um, the Obama administration, just because this is such a thorny concept, right, is um, under the Affordable Care Act, we launched the um, Innovation Center at CMS, at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, it's called CMMI, um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. And um, what they did is actually invested $10 billion in testing out different payment models to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, so there's like a treasure trove of data over there. And so now I think the work of the new administration, um, so the political staff that are new and have come in, plus the career staff who kind of saw all of that work, um, is going to be sorting out which of those experimental models we make either requirements, do we make these voluntary, you know, like what are we going to do with all this information that we spent the last, um, you know, uh, five to seven years collecting. That That's really helpful and a great example, I think, because for any listener, myself included, that might be thinking or witnessing all of these debates, right? Should we repeal Obamacare? Should we pass this new type of bill? Um, is is the Trump administration supporting um, health care for all or do they have another vision behind it? Those ideological debates will continue to persist, but at the end of the day, they're all rooted in this foundation of of prior research prior data sets, and people who have really, really robust not institutional knowledge about what that what those outcomes of research and data um, could show or could direct us towards. So no matter what the sort of top line news cycle turn of political debate day to day, there is this underlying foundation of individuals who are helpful in steering what the direction of those policies should be once sort of the politics of them uh, have been settled. Exactly. And I think that the great value of career staff is like you've got people who have been there five years, 10 years, sometimes even 20 years. Um, and they can tell you, you know, under Bush, we tried this and it, it worked or it didn't work. And under Clinton, we did this. And under Obama, we did this. And I think what they'll also realize, you know, what you realize over time when you've been in these roles is that every uh, two to three years, that's kind of a cycle, right? There's like people kind of cycle in and out and, you know, you can talk about the revolving door or whatever. But um, the, the new people who come in always are seize upon some new idea. And most of the time, I'll say like more than more than five out of 10 times that idea has already, like someone else has already had that idea, already tried it. And um, you see a lot of this kind of uh, circle. <laughs> what is that? I think, what was that show on HBO where the, um, Matthew McConaughey's character says time is a flat circle? <laughs> you remember that show about two detectives? True detective. Oh, true detective. It, yes, it's so yes. true. Yeah, it's so true. Um, time is a flat circle. And, and I think that the real value of the career staff is that they've seen that circle go on and on before, and they can tell you, here's the data that we pulled last time we tried this experiment. And they probably have really good ideas about what to do next time. If you want to kind of dig into that issue again, here's what worked, here's what didn't work, here's how we can make this more successful next time. Um, and that's and, pretty... you know, the other thing I'll say about... Oh, go ahead, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, please. I was going to say one more thing about career staff. I think that, um, and we can talk about this too when we talk about my role at USDS and kind of um, implanting technologists into government and how that works and, and sometimes doesn't work. But um, I think that the thing that people sometimes, sometimes career staff are disregarded unfairly because uh, new people will come in and wonder, why is this process so inefficient? Why is this reg 2,000 pages? <laughs> why is this the way it is? You know what I mean? Like there's, I, I'm a genius. I could think about so many different, better ways of doing this, right? Well, of course, like, of course, somebody else already kind of probably had those ideas. And there's maybe a good reason why that a process is the way it is or why a reg needs to be so long. And 
even if you don't agree with that rationale or that reason, it is always worth figuring out what that reason is. And if you don't have those people who have the institutional knowledge who are there at the time of inception of whatever project or thing that was, you will miss out on that, right? And so you'll kind of be spinning your wheels a little bit. So I think that if you are a political, if you're a technologist coming in to do a tour of duty with USDS or uh, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program or any number of these EIR programs that are spinning up all over the government, um, I think that one of the best things you can do when you first get started is to befriend some of those great career people who have been there and really learn from them. And I mean, and, and the folks that, that, um, were career, you know, just to, to paint the picture very clearly, those career staff who work with the political staff under Obama, many of them are still there under President Trump. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, I think there's been some attrition, obviously, um, but a lot of those people, I mean, their job is more important than ever. So, you know, obviously these major healthcare fights, you know, whether the Obamacare exchanges will continue to operate in the future um, or whether, you know, sort of the, the, the legislation of the day, the legislation du jour right now that the country is talking about is being introduced by Senators Graham and, and Cassidy. Um, those are important fights and they're, they're foundational fights, um, but there are a lot of other elements to our healthcare system, which are sort of continuing to hum along, in both in terms of their research, their analysis, and their policy implementation. One of those areas is sort of what you pointed to. You said a treasure trove of data sets exists in, in certain corners of the government, um, and frankly, in, in all, all over the government and all over even community health clinics or uh, the private sector, all of which, when you take a look at, there's a beautiful mosaic of, uh, among these data specifically because there's a lot that you can tell and learn um, about a not only a patient, but what are some of the variables that are informing that patient's well-being or ailments over time. So I know that you had mentioned earlier you worked at the Precision, um, worked on PMI, uh, the Precision Medicine Initiative. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what precision health is in the healthcare world and why data and the interoperability of that data is really important for accessing healthcare uh, research. Yeah, sure. Um, so the precision medicine program um, is a great example of something that was catalyzed in one administration that has broad bipartisan support and which I'm, I'm not afraid about its future. I think it's going to continue and be super successful. And I think we did a great job at the end of the last administration, making sure that each program was institutionalized at the various agencies. So um, what is precision medicine? The idea put simply is that right now, when you or I walk into a doctor's office, too often we're treated like Let's say, you know, you're Vikram Iyer, you go as a patient in, into the doctor's office, you are kind of treated as a generic patient, maybe a male of your particular age, which I won't call out on this podcast, um, but they may not even take <laughs> into old. account, you know, where, <laughs> well, then I am too, um, but they, they might not take into account where you live, what environmental factors you're dealing with, um, your race, your ethnicity, um, you're any of your genetic data, almost certainly not, right? So like there's a ton of data about you as an individual, what you eat, for example, I, I hope, you know, your general practitioner does not know about your dietary habits. <laughs> but I think like all of those, all of those data points are super important when we're talking about treating a person, right? A whole person, not just one specific, as you said, ailment. So you might come in with, you know, let's say uh, a pulled muscle in your shoulder and you might go to your doctor and say, listen, my back has been killing me. It's now become like a migraine headache. 
really with that doctor, and of course, you know, it's about incentives too in our healthcare system and what we're set up, what doctors are getting paid for and how many patients they have to see in a day and how much time they're able to spend with each individual patient. But, um, you know, in the ideal world, you would collect way more data about you and your daily habits to get to the bottom of what's going on with you. So are you stressed out? You know, are you um, not eating properly? Do you maybe have some kind of genetic condition which predisposes you to migraines? Do you, are you going to have like an adverse reaction to a medication based on your genetic or your, um, your genetic background or your um, environmental factors, you know, something like that. So there's all of these different types of um, data points that you can collect on an individual. And when we do a good job of looking at healthcare from that perspective, so as opposed to saying, you know, you're a generic person, we kind of have a, um, a, a checklist of things that I'm going to ask you. And it's, it's not really about you as an individual, but I'm just going to kind of prescribe you something maybe and send you on your way. Um, I think a lot of the times too, mental health data is a huge variable that is not discussed in the doctor's office. And it's a great way to get more individualized about a patient's health. Um, and then when we talk about our more vulnerable patients, the ones that end up costing the healthcare system the most, the ones who are maybe from lower economic um, areas, lower SES status, um, those people really benefit from this a lot because then you can talk about well, are you on food stamps? Are your kids getting enough to eat? How much chronic stress do you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? Do you lack transportation to get you to and from your doctor's office or to and from your, um, you know, just to get food for your family, basic things? Um, all of those, you know, data points are super helpful to treating you as an individual. And so that's what we, we talk about when we're talking about personalized medicine. We're talking about making the healthcare system work for you as an individual, as opposed to you as just generic um type and if that and makes sense that makes complete sense and that and that data um is you know it's rich right there's there's vast 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 numbers of variables that you outlined many of them um but even, that extend well beyond um even just the course of this conversation that can inform healthcare outcomes and how physicians address not only patient care, but frankly, how the government can address patient care um, from a policy perspective. So is, that data then should pretty much not be um, Democratic or Republican or red or blue. They're just American data sets that inform the entire debate, regardless of what sort of law is enacted. Is that right? Yeah. And luckily, um, the issue of making our, our health information records from paper to electronic is not something that's controversial, right? So President Obama made huge strides in the last administration to move us as a healthcare system from paper records to electronic health records. Um, and a lot of that was through a 2010 piece of legislation called HITECH, um, part of the ERA money, the um, recovery money. And uh, a lot of that went out to, uh, in, in the form of incentive payments to incentivize physicians to adopt electronic health records and move their data um, to electronic data points. And so now we have, as you said, you know, a wealth of electronic data. Now the challenge becomes how do you get that data out of these electronic health record systems? There's a lot of variety in um, quality of these systems. So, um, a lot of the times it can be extreme. It's, it's much too difficult still today for a patient to even get access to her own records, right. let alone um, for a physician to send electronically a patient's record to another physician. And this is a huge issue, for example, with the um, opioid crisis. I was actually reading an article just yesterday 
about a mom who was being interviewed by, I think it was in Ohio, although I'm not sure. Um, but if you want to link to the story afterwards, I would be happy to send it to you. So basically, if you are um, a prescription drug addict and you get admitted to the hospital for like, let's say it's something else, like let's say you're in a car accident and it has nothing to do with your addiction, you end up in the hospital. I think in this particular case, the mom's son had been in recovery and he had gone through a program and he was kind of in recovery and then he was in some unrelated accident and like he had broken something or he had um, a lung condition or something like that. So he went to the hospital and then they didn't, he didn't, um, his record didn't follow him to the hospital. He was a veteran too. So his VA record, which contained information about his addiction and the fact that he should not be prescribed opioid drugs, didn't follow him to the new hospital where he had been admitted. And, and so he got sent home with a, a bunch of drugs. Like, I think it was actually an abnormal amount of an abnormally large prescription. So he got sent home with that and he overdosed that very night. And cases like that are incredibly tragic. And you would think should be really easily preventable since all of this data is supposed to be electronic and should follow the patient where that patient goes. So um, we still have a lot of challenges when it comes to interoperability of these systems to combat, you know, opioids are now national. Uh, it's a national imperative to solve this problem. Absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, to this administration, to the Trump administration's credit, um, this is certainly something that sounds like continues to be worked on and tackled, um, tackled from various corners of the government beyond just the White House. And on also to one of the cabinet members' credits, uh, the Veterans Affairs Department Secretary Shulkin, who also served in the Obama administration, um, seems to have made uh, veteran access to their health data a principal priority of his also to, to speak towards what you just mentioned in terms of better outcomes for um, our honored veterans in this country. So, you know, for anyone that continues to feel worried about what their state of health care is, we all still have a lot more work to do, ensuring that we all have broadened access to a variety of communities. Um, but these little threads that are championed by hardworking uh, career staff in the federal government day in and day out uh, certainly do give us a glimmer of hope, regardless of how the politics shake out. Um, one other hopeful concept that was um, you know, teased out by the Obama administration and still continues under this administration in some way, shape, or form is this concept of what you spoke to earlier, Maya, um, the United States Digital Service, the Presidential Innovations Fellows Program. Um, these, You said EIR, these entrepreneurial in resident concepts in which government, um, which typically isn't necessarily the best friend of the technology community or the innovation community, um, is increasingly trying to tap into those that have advanced skill sets in whether it's data science or computer science or any sort of technical background to come in, um, serve their country, do a tour of duty, as you mentioned, and, and make sure they can apply their insights to better outcomes for the rest of the American population and frankly, the world. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like being a part of one of those teams that you know swelled its ranks with those from the private sector and the technology sector and sort of why you think it is important to have that two-way flow of talent between um, public and private entities? Absolutely. I think the mission of USDS is incredibly interesting and they're always recruiting. So if any of your listeners are interested in applying, you can apply at USDS.gov. But um, so, and that's a program that's going to continue too. It's not, um, it's not political. And I think that it, it also enjoys bipartisan support because how can you argue with deploying technologists and, and kind of the best and brightest to solve some of the most pressing data challenges that we have across the federal government? 
Um, I think that a lot of what our teams focus on, which was really interesting to me, is the concept of user-centered design. This is not something that I had a ton of experience with before moving to the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, and as a kind of career fed myself, before I moved to that White House role, I had I kind of heard about user-centered design, but I didn't really understand what it was, um, kind of had vague understandings of what product design meant. But um, the concept, once I really got the hang of it and saw how it could be applied to improve people's health, really kind of changed my life <laughs> um, in, in a wide variety of contexts now, uh, both with my work life and just in my personal life and my relationships. Like, you kind of have to think about what are you trying to accomplish? What's the service or product or whatever you're trying to produce? Do you have a laser-like focus on whether this service or product is working for your intended user, right? And that's, that's really what it is in a nutshell, um, but it's so, it's so transformative when you apply it to government services. So, for example, we have uh, teams, I'm going to say we, even though I'm no longer with the team, but uh, USDS has teams at a wide variety of different agencies. Um, the VA has a really great and successful team. I was on the healthcare team. We worked with CMS and then also a little bit with NIH. And um, basically what these teams do is, is go in and try to make more efficient and help the agency think about these really complex technology challenges that they have. So, for example, at CMS, what we are working on is helping the agency figure out how to better manage the data that it takes in from the physician community, the provider community, about quality in healthcare. So, as I was talking about before, we're in the midst of this uh, transition between fee-for-service and value-based care. A big part of that is going to be dependent on collecting better data from physicians about what quality means, right, and how, how much they're tracking to meet certain measures that we as a country, you know, public through public-private processes have defined as being um, quality measures. So, um, basically, the way it works is that CMS will kind of adopt some of these measures and say, and I'm kind of oversimplifying this, but um, they'll kind of have a set of quality measures that, that providers need to hit, and then based on how the provider's score on those measures, they will get a payment adjustment from Medicare. And again, that's oversimplified, but if anyone wants to learn more, there's something called the Quality Payment Program, which is something new um, that CMS is kind of just launching right now. And um, providers are going to be participating and sending data up to CMS and kind of getting the score back from them. So what we wanted to do is figure out how can we how can we take in this data in the most efficient way possible? How can we return feedback to physicians in a way that is actionable and usable for them so that they can kind of figure out how they can improve over time? And then how can CMS do some really cool analytics on the data that they get in to figure out how, where we're going as an industry and what else we need to do on, on the federal level, at the program level, to kind of make the changes happen in the market that we want to see? Um, so that was an incredibly complex, really interesting project. You get to work with a bunch of providers as our, you know, users of these systems to see what was going to be the most helpful for them. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that I had a chance to do when I was in government, once I kind of understood this concept of user-centered design, is to go out into the field and interview physicians about for example, their use of electronic health records. Just like, what is it like? Because, you know, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT, which is where I used to work at HHS, their whole job was kind of the adoption and interoperability of electronic health records. 
Um, but, and while we had some physicians in the office, like there's a, a fair chunk of people at ONC who had experience as providers, um, as healthcare providers working with patients and working with these systems. But a lot of the policy people had never used an EHR themselves, right? So like, so I think it was a, a really enlightening and instructive experience to be able to, and it was great to have the support of leadership at ONC to spend my time doing this too. I have to mention that. Um, and, and to so, go out to different hospitals. And also, can you can you tell us sort of why you think this was critical to do with the U.S. digital service specifically? Yeah, sure. I, so I think like in any case where you're coming in and trying to make a process better, you can come in with some preconceived judgments or notions about how you would make it better. But I think what we have to remember, and I think what USDS does really well, and and kind of what I will never forget about that experience is that you really need to be on the ground interviewing the people who are going to be the ultimate users of your product. And a lot sometimes, depending on what the project is, what the USDS project is, it's going to be the taxpayer. In our case, it was um, physicians um, at ONC. It was sometimes patients, sometimes physicians, sometimes electronic health record vendors. So you have to like really do some market segmentation, think about who your users are going to be, and then get out into the field and collect a bunch of data about what is working and what's not working for them, and then make sure that you're designing with that feedback in mind. And then the other thing that I think is like a critical kind of cultural lesson that USDS is able to um, bring to their work with the agency is, is testing and iteration and um, continuous like continuously cycling through product development so that you never have to be quite done. You know what I mean? So before I joined USDS, the way that I was very used to doing projects was that we would, um, I, you know, we would get a contract up and running. We'd award the contract to a contractor with a large chunk of money. They would work on it, let's say, for a year. At the end of the contract, um, they would kind of give us this product. And then it was done. The contract was over. The money was spent. And if we didn't like the product or if we didn't think that it was working, we were kind of screwed. You're done. You don't have any yeah. more money. So um, instead, what we tried to implement, um, and this is this is USDS. It's kind of like the, dig the digital services coalition, we could say, because there's folks at GSA that are doing this. There's 18F. There's um, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, as I mentioned. So there's a bunch of different people working on this kind of stuff. But um, uh, implementing more of an agile process so that let's say every two weeks continuously, you are checking in with a contractor, you're testing the product, you're getting even more feedback from your users on a regular basis, that there's so many different touch points in the process that you can tweak things, you can change things. So you are continuously trying to improve and make it better. And um, that's so much more of an efficient way to identify problems before they become entrenched and to make sure that every step of the way what you're building is really going to be useful for your users. And so what is the, I mean, that's fascinating um, reflection on, on some of the work that you're doing. I guess at the end of the day, why is it important that to do this, that you're getting folks that have never worked in government before involved? Um, you certainly have significant government experience, but I think much of the premise for all the programs that you mentioned was specifically to recruit outside of the ranks of government. Um, and I guess my question 
is what what's the value of that and is the ability um as someone who had a chance to work under the Trump administration as well is the ability to recruit technologists into the ranks of government under this administration changed or impacted in any way in the same way that we've seen you know CEOs and advisors to things like his manufacturing council drop out in light of differences in ideology or is that still humming along in a meaningful way that's a great question. Um, so I'll answer the latter part of your question first in terms of recruiting. Actually, I was pleasantly surprised right before I left, we did an orientation for a bunch of new USDF staff. And so people are people are still joining, people are still applying. Um, I oh, think great. that the folks, yeah, it is really great. Um, the folks that are applying, may, maybe I'll say they might have <laughs> they might have a little less ego about the work even and and really understand the public service mission, and I almost think that's better. You know what I mean? Like I think the people that were applying and I did a couple interviews before I left too. They seem to be people who understood that it wasn't about the politics; it's about going to the agency and serving the American people. And I actually thought that was great. And so I, I almost think the kind of people that we are going to be recruiting now, that USDS is going to be recruiting now for the next couple of years, are people who get that, right? Because they're only going to apply if they really understand what the impact is. And that, they understand that there can still be an impact, even though um, we're in a different kind of administration. Right, and so right, I think that's right. great. Like going, and extending... The people that I interviewed, I thought they were very impressive. Yeah, extending um, beyond the, right the brand, extending beyond the brand of like what necessarily Barack Obama would bring to the table versus even knowing that you want to serve no matter what Donald Trump brings to the table. Exactly. And it becomes less, honestly, it becomes less about the prestige of saying you have a White House badge and just there are people who just want to do the work, which yeah. I think is great. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. Not to say that, I mean, so many of my colleagues under Obama obviously were, were laser like focused on doing the real hard work. But um, I almost think that element of, uh, you know, Jonah West exec, <laughs> people who watch these. Um, that That's our second really HBO reference on the on the show. HBO is getting some love from <laughs> us here. Well, as you know, I love me some HBO. But um, yeah, so I, I almost think that element of ego is gone, which can be kind of a, a great thing, actually. Yeah. And, and I guess then, you know, you've mentioned that there's a lot of meaningful, interesting work that was started under President Obama that continues today under Trump. Some of that is making sure we can leverage data for better health outcomes. Some of that is making sure that we can tap into uh, private sector and technology talent so that way we can advance other criti mission critical outcomes for the American people. So as someone that had a chance to serve both administrations, um, there are a lot of people out there who are you know nervous every time that they open their Facebook feeds or their Twitter feeds or they see um, what the news of the day is. Is, there is a question as to their, whether there is a erosion in the trust of institution of government or of White House or even the bully pulpit of the president based off of certain things the president may or may not have said. So you have enumerated an, a number of really, really good um, jewels in the crown of this country's federal apparatus that continue to, to um, rev their engines today. So to anyone that might seem concerned about what government is is looking like um, under the modern leadership, um, what would you say to them, given the fact that we've reflected on a lot of meaningful work that still continues to occur? Um, I would say I get it. I get how you feel. Um, having said that, 
one of the things that I learned in law school when you go through constitutional law and dawned on me kind of at that time is how beautiful our constitution is and the way that our federal government is set up is actually so uh, so impressive in in how we how the checks and balances are set up, and I think that's what you're seeing right now, right? You're seeing that play out in Congress. You're seeing that play out with uh, various EOs that have been moving or trying Executive to move orders, um, in this so. administration. You're seeing that with the judiciary. So um, I think a lot of this is let's see how this goes. I think this is a great test of our American institutions and. Um, so far, I've been encouraged. I mean, the federal processes that used to, uh, when we were at the White House, that used to frustrate us because everything took so long and we just wanted to move, 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 and we had to get so much done. And, you know, why do we have to wait for, like, this process or that process or this interagency review? I mean, those things are there for a reason. They're there to make sure that we, that the decisions that are made by those in power are decisions that have been validated fully that are um, ethical, that are compliant with, um, you know, applicable laws. And, and all those processes uh, serve their purpose, which is to prevent sweeping wholesale change that you would see in a dictatorship, right? So I think that, I think I'm grateful for not only all the career staff that still come to work every day to do their jobs and kind of impart their wisdom, and all, but also for the federal processes that used to, be a thorn in my side when I really wanted to get something done. Um, but, but you know, can ser they serve their own purpose. And I think that we should all be grateful for them. They're frustrating for a reason. And democracy is not supposed to be easy. It's hard, but I think it's a better product at the end of the day. You get a better product at the end of the day, and you get something that, um, you know, you will keep the American people safe. And um, yeah, that's very and, well. That's yeah. very well said. I mean, that the deliberative process of our democracy is really what's core to the story of this country, right? That we try new experiments, even as you mentioned earlier, whether they're policy experiments or ideological experiments, we see if they work, if they fail, then we kind of regroup and weigh in and reflect on you know what we've learned and brick by brick, try to um, ensure more perfect outcomes. I guess one question that you may have gotten all the time that I would be interested in knowing is, you know, when you walk into the White House versus uh, under President Obama, I'm sure there's one type of vibe. And when you walk into the White House under President Trump, there may be another type of vibe. But to your point, it's still the same sense of patriotic duty. Um, what did you say to folks that asked you um, what it was like to, to walk into that second White House? Um, I, I imagine some of the reflection was similar to what you just mentioned about making sure we're all doing work on behalf of the American people. But um, did you ever get that question and was it ever bothersome or did you sort of just, were you able to keep your eye on the prize in terms of what you were there? Yeah, that's a great question. For me personally, um, because my politics are more liberal and because I was so passionate about the leadership of the previous administration, for me, when I came back, uh, some of the energy was was not there, right? So I can be honest about that. Like the the sense that I got being in the building last, before I was on maternity leave. <laughs> I came back to Trump's administration after my maternity leave, so I took a good five months off. Um, but before that, your daughter is, there a, was is a, a big fan of the podcast. I hear. That's right. Of course, <laughs> uh, she listens all the time. Um, before, I think I would step in the building and I kind of felt like it was humming with this energy in which all the people that I would see in the hallway, the folks in the, the chief technologist office, the um, 
the science and technology policy shop, we were all kind of moving on the kind of like on the same train. We were all kind of moving in the same direction. We were all broadly supportive of each other. And um, I always felt that energy being there. And I feel really grateful to have had that experience. Um, I think there's just more uncertainty now. So when you walk in the building or when I would go in the building now, in on one hand, I'm surprised at how familiar everything is and how the work just keeps going. And um, USDS is housed under the Office of Management and Budget, which contains a ton of career staff. So I came back to a lot of the same familiar faces at USDS, the same kind of faces at, OM, at OMB. Um, so, so much of that was familiar and the same. At the same time, um, I think that there was just, there wasn't that same sense of a shared mission and shared drive in the Eisenhower Executive Office building, not within USDS. I think USDS still shares that mission. Um, but being in like the broader White House, there was more of a sense of uncertainty than that clarity of purpose that I had felt before. If that makes sense. No, that, that's, that's beautifully put because I imagine that um, we, we can all be honest with one another and say that while at the same time um, there's going to be differences in attitude or energy and at the same time that there is a, um, you know, there are certain programs, meaningful programs that continue to exist under this administration as a carryovers from the last administration that the onus is sort of on us individually or anyone who wants to show up to those buildings to bring that energy to the table to make sure that it continues to, as you said, hum along. Right. Um, I guess, you know, to that point, uh, when it comes to showing up and, and leadership in general in government, um, th this is a pretty unique moment in time, um, putting aside the presidents, um, who they are and their ideologies, and specifically in terms of uh, leadership by way of what the diversity of our leadership r ranks kind of look like. Um, you, you have, you know, we mentioned that there's been a lot of pull of technologists um, from the private sector, from Silicon Valley, being recruited into government. Um, we've also seen that there is a, a rising tide of, of female voices in the U.S. Senate, for example, really shaping elements of this modern healthcare debate um, and, and being able to really uh, establish a, a presence and a, and a point of resistance um, when it comes to different pieces of ideology. Um, most notably, we've had, you know, senators... Uh, Lisa Murkowski um, and Susan Collins be really, really visible when it comes to healthcare. We've also seen the rise of um, really, really prominent groups that are focused on electing more women to office, like Emily's List. See record donations, um, and of course, you know, most famously, right after the inauguration. Um, there was a, a massive cohort and showing up of women around the country, but frankly, around the world that were there to make known that women's issues, um, access to preventative medicine, to reproductive health, um, and a whole bevy of other uh, matters, including pay equity, um, gender equity, respect for women, even in our rhetoric. All, there has been this groundswell of female leadership and female voice that has always been core to our country's identity, but is way more pronounced now more than ever, in my opinion, I guess, as a, a female leader that worked in the White House um, and is now sort of in, on the private sector side, what could you say to those listeners in terms of your role specifically being a woman in the White House um, or broadly what you're seeing in terms of how the rhetoric of the, the treatment of gender balances in this country mean for uh, sort of what the rhetoric looks like compared to what you saw play out when you were, you know, in, in leadership positions? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. Um, it's also like a really loaded question. So let's see if I can break it up. Um, I'll say that 
having a baby, I was always a feminist before, like in my life, I've always called myself a feminist. Having a baby has sort of made me an angry feminist, (laughs) which I don't think I was quite as angry about it before. And now it makes, I think there is like a sense of urgency, not only because I have a daughter, but also because I, I think my generation grew up assuming that we would be able to have everything, that we would be able to have kids and have a job and be happy about both things and have enough time to spend with our family, but also enough time to do a good job at work. So we kind of came up thinking that all of those things were going to work out for us. And it is harder than I thought. It's much harder than I thought. And I think there's a few systemic reasons and solutions, but um, there's a few things that I've kind of pinpointed. First of all, of course, we need more, we need paid maternity leaves for women in this country. That's, it's insane that we still don't have that. We don't have that as federal employees. So what we have is a patchwork of, you can take, you can max out your sick leave. You can max out your vacation time, which means you have to hoard your vacation time for the previous year, however long you know, for the duration of your pregnancy or even longer, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, forget about taking vacation. Basically, you're going to want to keep all of that so that you can use that for your leave. Um, Under Obama, there was a new kind of, I think they did as much as they could from an administrative standpoint, but this is the kind of thing that requires legislation. Um, You could advance up to six weeks of sick leave, I believe, but you would have to pay it back if you left. So I actually didn't do that. Luckily, because this is my first child and I've been in government for five years, I had enough leave to take me to, um, I think, about a little less than four months. And for because I need to take a couple more weeks, and I'll get into why in a second, but I did about three weeks of unpaid leave. And then when I came back to USDS, I worked for three days a week and did two days a week unpaid leave for another, I want to say, month. So I I kind of did a slow transition for myself. Um, Before I ever got pregnant, I thought three months seems like more than enough, and I don't know why I would ever need more than that. When you are in it, um, it's not even just about physical recovery, which, of course, is an important thing, especially if you've had a C-section. The physical recovery is intense. but it's an emotional recovery. You're not sleeping. I, I don't think I quite realized too, like the effects of a lack of sleep on your life and your quality of like your well-being. Um, if you are waking up four to six times a night to be up with your baby, you are not going to be able to function at work and you're barely able to function in your life. Like there was a point in time where I thought I probably shouldn't be driving the car because you are so tired that your body is almost acting as if it's a drunk. I think like science proves out that extreme fatigue actually has the same effects as being under the influence. So um, all of that to say, of course, we need paid maternity leave for women. I think it should be a minimum of six months. In other countries, they give you up to a year, so uh, or even more than that. So I think that's what we need to be focusing on for women. However, I'll also say that it is almost equally as important for men to take, for partners and men, to take uh, paternity leave. So the reason is because the inequality between men and women, I think almost even no matter how egalitarian your marriage is and how enlightened and supportive your husband is, if you are the one who's at home with your baby for three months, for four months, for however long, and your husband goes back to work, it sets up an unequal dynamic from the beginning. 
And um, it's very difficult to undo that and to kind of restore a, a more balanced, equal division of labor in your household in the months that follow. So I think that not only do we need paid maternity leave for women, we also need to make sure that all partners are able to take uh, paid leave as well. And it should be substantial. I think at minimum, I would say three months, but I mean, we could have a whole policy conversation about what makes sense. Um, but that's how you really get to equality. And I think that so many other issues start from that. Because if you start the whole dynamic in, in the American family as the mom knows how to take care of the baby and has that expertise because she was at home with the baby for months and weeks, it's so hard to undo that. And then it becomes, I mean, there's been a lot, um, since I was on maternity leave, there was that cartoon that went viral about the mental load. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, um, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it kind of really circulated. And that's where it starts. The mental load all falls on the woman because it starts that way because she's the one who physically gives birth to the baby. But the thing is, after you give birth, pretty much the only thing your partner can't do is breastfeed. <laughs> So everything else, guess what? The partner is able to help. And I think we shouldn't even really be talking about it as help. It should be, you know, the partner's not helping the mom. The partner is equally co-managing the house and the family. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to kind of find a way to, to institutionalize that at the beginning. And I think so many other problems would be more would be more easily resolved if we could do a better job of that at the start. Um, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but <laughs> no, no, it's, I <laughs> that's mean, where it's, my mind went. It's a, it's a great point because we can talk about um, women in leadership positions and we can even talk about the, the dearth of, of women in the boardroom, in C-suite roles, in parliaments around the, the country, um, and frankly, or around the world, and then frankly, even in, in the highest ranks of, of government up to the Oval Office. Um, but no matter what we talk about in terms of celebrating that diversity um, or poo-pooing the gaps of that diversity, it really does start with how are we making steps or how, how aware really are we of the very systemic and kind of foundational reasons for some of these certain outcomes or some of these certain gaps in that diversity, right? And so that's a, that's a fascinating point, specifically because as you come out of the White House um, and while you were in the White House, your own personal experience shaped so much of that head on. So I very, very much appreciate you sharing that very personal reflection. Yeah, and, and I will say too, employers, you know, talking to your point about how do we recruit more women into these positions, employers who offer paid leave, um, both for women and for partners, are going to be able to recruit the best talent. And I think more and more companies are seeing that and investing in that. Um, but, you know, for example, I wouldn't have been able to have a second kid in government because I wouldn't have had enough leave, right? So, like, this influences the choices that people make, Um when, and for most people, I think for most women, they're going to make a choice that is best for their family, right? So like, so my current firm offers four and a half months of paid maternity leave. Obviously, they've made a choice to invest in women and women are going to stay at that firm or, you know, whatever company and have their second kid. And they're going to, and I think when you feel as a woman and as a mom, if you feel like your employer is investing in you, you are so much more likely to give 100% and invest back in that employer. Absolutely. Um, and you won't have to make a decision, right, to, that, oh, I have to leave this company because I want to have a second kid. Like, what a terrible position for a woman to have to be in to say, either I'm going to think about the shape of my family 
or I'm going to think about whether to stay at a job that I might love. And the, um, and that, and that's, that really sucks. And that's that's a hell of a point because the concept of the American family um, is really held together and threaded together, um, not only by the, the the persistence of partnership and the the ability for parents to show up and, and really create a nurturing environment. But frankly, to your point, a lot of these policies that might sound like really wonky government jargony policies, but they do inform everyday decision making among families like yourself. Like or your own. Absolutely, and yeah. and I think I think one of the things too that we saw um, in the last several months is that there is an there's interest from the Republican side in paid leave, and I think for the you know the Republicans are supposed to be the party of family values, so I think it's really encouraged. I mean, what better value than to let parents be home in these first few months when a child is so vulnerable, so small, so dependent on you, um, and there, so much of the science and studies show how much benefit infants get when their parents can be there when they're constantly getting responsive care from their um, from their parents um, and how good that is for the child's development. I don't know how, I, I think this should absolutely be a part bipartisan issue. I think it's very encouraging that you're seeing both sides take it seriously um, because I think it's finally hitting home that this is something we really need for the benefit of our kids. 100%, and that's very, very well said. Uh, well, Maya, I, it's it's extraordinary to to see somebody that not only is invested in her own child's well being, um, as well as sort of what impacts uh, you know your peers and fellow women to to make decisions that are both good for the home but also good for the country, while all at the same time being so mindful about some of the systems that affect the outcomes of families and their health and well being every day. Thank you for your service and and thanks for joining American Enough. Thanks, Vikram. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.